Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Hope you had a good week, whatever you were doing. Uh, I want to talk about walking today. It's been on our mind a little bit. Um, about 70, 80 of us went to uh, Tennessee. And this is in, by no means to rub it in the face of those who didn't. I know you, you had other stuff going on, and we would invite you to that next year. But um, it, was, it was good to get away. And we always uh, love what God does on, on that particular break and that particular spring break trip. Um, spend a lot of time walking because you're in the mountains and it's beautiful and there's a lot to see and uh, we were in the Smokies right outside Gatlinburg and so we did a couple, several day hikes um, <clears throat> each day and um, here's, here's a couple things that I experienced. One was just the, the beauty of God's creation and uh, realizing how flat Indiana is, you know. <laughs> We have this thing, uh, we live kind of out by Harrison High School, out in the cornfields, and so if you, if you do it just right, if there are a few clouds on the horizon, you can go outside and squint and make the clouds look like mountains, you know, and that's what we do, that's what we do for fun, and uh, there's one little road that has some trees, and so we, we go down that road with our dog, and, but Tennessee's a whole, whole nother story, so some time just in the creation and, and waterfalls and, and uh, trees and somebody saw a deer, I think, which was awesome. No bears, unfortunately. Um, also, just time with people. A big part of that trip is just we have a, a lot of time together, and so it's a chance to, to for a community. A lot of times I come here on a Sunday, and you can, you can sit for week to week and not really get to know anybody. Fortunately, and so that's why we're always saying, oh, get in, get in a community group, come, come on a retreat, just so that we can be community and not a bunch of autonomous people, right? And so it is a chance to, to be community together. It's also a chance to um, uh, have some new experiences. Uh, some of those experiences are, are really good, and some of them are really hard. Did you guys, you guys went to Utah back there? How was that? Any blisters? One blister? <laughs> yeah. I hate you right now. Because um, I, I, I went to Goodwill the day before we left, and I didn't have any, any hiking boots. And so I, we were out running some errands, and so I said, Lee, I'm going to go over to Goodwill and find some hiking boots. She said, that won't work. <laughs> And I should listen to my wife because she is a wise woman. But I went in with all of the, uh, you know, the tenacity and the determination to find some hiking boots. And, and there were none on the regular racks. But, you know, the glass case in Goodwill where the good stuff is? Well, <laughs> behind the glass case, there was this box of Columbia hiking boots in my size. Brand new. Bad idea. So... Someone had returned this brand new box of Columbia hiking boots. And so I snatched those and went on this hike up the mountain. And when we got to the top, my feet were just aching because of blisters. And now I know why someone returned those hiking boots to Goodwill because they don't work. And so, um, so 
Going up, it was all about getting to the top and, you know, not collapsing along. And, and at the top, it was all about, all I could think about was just the pain of my feet. And so I, I was very attentive walking down the mountain about where I stepped. And, uh, and then uh, on Wednesday, I got some moleskin, which is awesome. You basically build a cushion around your blister. And, uh, and so I went on another hike. And this one I just took nice and slow. And so instead of getting to the top or instead of concerned about the pain on my feet, it was an awareness of people and an awareness of the walk itself. The walk is a metaphor for this life with God. And it is a metaphor that is all throughout Scripture, and it is a metaphor that is all throughout kind of Christianity. And uh, we actually spent time the whole week in Knox, in, in Gatlinburg, in the book of James. And in the book of James is this uh, five chapters of just really practical, lived theology. We even used uh, the hiking guide as our journal through James, and it's this so it is uh, walking with God is, is a metaphor for intimacy. It is a metaphor for dependency. It's a metaphor for relationships. And you see that if you go to um, a bookstore, uh, lots and lots of books about walking. This, I just was looking at our shelf at home. We just have a few books at home. And um, these are some books that were on our shelf. Um, the Jesus Way, In His Steps, which is Charles Sheldon, uh, Walking with Giants, Walking with Saints, Restless Pilgrim, which is about Bob Dylan, um, His Faith, Unlikely Pilgrimage of Harold Fry, which has nothing to do with God, but it's a cool book, and then uh, Shel Silverstein, Where the Sidewalk Ends, right? So, so lots of, of books on my shelf about walking. Unfortunately, as Christians are prone to do, especially in our culture, many have turned the Christian walk into this unhealthy kind of works-based assessment. And so we, maybe not you, but the, the kind of the climate I grew up in, especially in places like, like Bible college or uh, in, um, in Christian community in some churches, the, 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 the question was asked, how is your Christian walk or how is your walk with Christ? Which is a great question, except, unfortunately, it's, it's been bent to kind of mean, uh, how are you holding up in terms of your spiritual disciplines, or in terms of your, your church time, or in terms of the Christian stuff, right? And so... It inflicts this anxiety and, and shame if that walk kind of sucks right now. Or it can inflict kind of a, a spiritual pride or self-righteousness if we can check off the boxes and have all the appropriate self-disciplines, spiritual disciplines, and acts of service. And so masks on the one hand and trophies on the other, unfortunately, have, have blurred and tarnished this awesome metaphor. So over the next six weeks, I want to recapture that. 
I want to uh, reclaim it, hopefully, ho- hopefully restore it, because the essence of life with the Father, Son, and Spirit is this amazing thread of a spiritual walk. And it's all over Scripture. Genesis 3 says that Adam and Eve heard the sound of God walking in the garden. And they hid because they had just bought the lie that there was something better than God. But you assume, I think we can assume that normally they would have been on that same walk. Abraham was described as walking with God. Enoch walked with God. And then it says he was not because God took him, which would be an awesome way to go, you know? 300 and some years of walking with God, and then he vanished. Genesis 6, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. And there were plenty of other people who obviously walked with God, but just didn't have that that label of walking with God on them. Moses met with God face to face. David was a man after God's own heart. After David, there were five good kings who walked with God and 33 evil kings who did not. It was a slew of prophets who walked with God. Old Testament scriptures are filled with this metaphor. We read a couple of them this morning, Logan did. But Isaiah 30 says, your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it when you turn to the right or to the left. Psalm 119, you're blessed when you stay on course, walking steadily on the road revealed by God. You're blessed when you follow his directions, doing your best to find him. That's right, don't go off on your own. You walk straight along the road he set. Psalm 128, how blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. New Testament is full of it as well. 1 John 2, 6, the one who says he resides in God ought himself to walk as Jesus walked. 1 Peter 2, to walk in his steps, Ephesians 2. We are his creation, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time that we should walk in them. Galatians 5, I say walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. 2 Corinthians 5, we walk by faith, not by sight. John 8, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Ephesians 5 says we walk as children of light. 1 John 1 says if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from sin. Colossians 1, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. Walk, walk, walk. So can we reclaim that phrase so that it's not this guilt-inducing, oh, the self-assessment, or it's not some sort of a superiority check where my walk's a little bit better than their walk, and so in contrast, I'm doing pretty good, and so I can feel pretty good about myself, or I suck at this, and life is falling apart, or everything is hitting me from every single angle, and so don't ask me how my walk is right now, because I'm having a lot of questions and a lot of doubts, and I'm really struggling here. Can we reclaim the phrase, walk with Christ, walk with God, to be this beautiful metaphor for this journey with the God of the universe who put on flesh and dwelt among us so that we can have access to him forever? Can we have a reframing of that? 
So, for the next six weeks, I want to do that. For the next six weeks, I want to talk about us to talk about walking with Jesus, encountering Jesus. Walking is a big deal, not a head-down, achievement-based, results-driven, status-wearing, pride-soaked strut, but an eyes-open, grace-based, trust-driven, in-step-with, flaws-exposed, humility-drenched, heart-engaged, soul-on-fire walk with Jesus to prepare us for Easter. We're going to spend the next six weeks in a post-Easter story about walking. If you want to turn your Bible to Luke 24, this is uh, one of my favorite stories. We're going to spend six weeks in one story. We're going to read this each week as a way to immerse ourselves in this text in this story. And each week we'll try to draw something, we'll really rely on the Holy Spirit to, to highlight things for us um, as we learn to encounter Jesus on whatever road you're on. These are some of the things we're going to look at, recognizing that Jesus is with us, that Jesus meets us in the waiting, in the grief Realizing that we can encounter Jesus on every page of Scripture. And then moving from knowledge about Jesus to actually knowing Jesus, to hearts full of passion for Jesus, to sharing this good news about Jesus. And so that's where we're going. Today I want to talk about the seven-mile hike. And the, the goal of today is to provide some context for this story. Um, I'm going to start with just looking at it through the lens of, and the side story of a group of women. And then we're going to read through the story and look at some initial takeaways. Okay. Let's pray before we do that. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for your invitation to us today. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you animate the word for us. That even if this is a particular passage of scripture that we have read a hundred times, we can read it with new eyes and opened hearts and curious minds to look and see and know and be blown away by Jesus. Please remove any distractions so that we can have full access to what you would have for us today through your word. Thank you that we are the gathered church, that as we have been talking the last few weeks, we need each other in this process and in this walk. And so as we walk together through your scripture today, even that practice, God, make, make us one in that. Give us attentiveness to your spirit, to your presence, to your power. And we pray in Jesus for the glory of his name. Amen. Amen. 
Luke 24. I want to go back and start in Luke chapter 23, verse 55. It says, The women who had come along with him from Galilee followed along and observed the tomb and how his body was placed. And then they returned and prepared spices and perfumes. And they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. So we're like, we're dropping into this text. Post-crucifixion. And the body of Jesus has been laid in the tomb. And we find these women coming to the tomb to prepare his body for burial, which was this, this very involved process. In John 19, we read the names of these women. Now, there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother, Mary, and his mother's sister, and Mary, the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. So lots of Marys. And then back in Luke 24, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came to the tomb bringing those spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And they went in but did not find the the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men stood by them in dazzling clothes. So the women were terrified and bowed down to the ground. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? Asked the men. He is not here, but he has been resurrected. Remember, How he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be betrayed into the hands of sinful man, be crucified, and rise on the third day. And they remembered his words. Returning from the tomb, they reported all of these things to the eleven and to all the rest. The eleven being the eleven of the original twelve, minus Judas Iscariot. And all of the rest, other followers of Jesus who were gathered. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them were telling the apostles these things. But these words seemed like nonsense to them, and they did not believe the women. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. When he stopped to look in, he saw only the linen cloths. So he went home amazed at what had happened. And then this is our text. Now that same day, two of them were on their way to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. Together they were discussing everything that had taken place. And while they were discussing and arguing, Jesus himself came near and began to walk along with them. But they were prevented from recognizing him. And then he asked them, what is this dispute that you're having with each other as you're walking? And they stopped walking and looked discouraged. The one named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that happened there these days? What things? He asked them. So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, powerful in action and speech before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we were hoping that he was the one. We were hoping that he was the one 
who was about to redeem Israel. Besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women from our group astounded us. They arrived early at the tomb, and when they didn't find his body, they came and reported that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And some of those who were there with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said, but they didn't see him. And he said to them, How unwise and slow you are to believe in your hearts and all the prophets have spoken. Didn't the Messiah have to suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And they came near the village where they were going, and he gave the impression that he was going farther But they urged him, stay with us because it's almost evening and now the day is almost over. And so he went in to stay with them. It was as he reclined at the table with them that he took the bread, blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. But he disappeared from their sight. So they said to each other, weren't our hearts ablaze within us? while he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us. That very hour, they got up and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those with them gathered together who said, the Lord has certainly been raised and has appeared to Simon. And then they began to describe what had happened on the road and how he was made known to them in the breaking of bread. So this is uh, on the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus in modern day what is called Moza. It's a Roman road to Jaffa. Sunday afternoon, we'll call it three o'clock. Seven mile walk, that's 14,000 steps on your Fitbit if you're counting at home. So that's the passage. As we spend time in that for the next six weeks, Here's the invitation. First of all, to put yourself in the story. Put yourself in the story. Richard Rohr talks about liminal spaces. And liminal is, uh, if you think about a doorway, it's a threshold. And so you are, you're leaving something and entering into something else. And, and that liminal space is, uh, well, It's a place of change, it's a place of transformation, but you don't know what that's going to look like. And so it's also a place of potential anxiety and um, anticipation, maybe some expectation. It's an awesome word to describe this walk that we are on because we are often in a really liminal space, right? And you see that through scripture as well. Abraham the liminal spaces when Abraham was called to leave home and to leave his family and to leave everything he knew in order to enter into, to move toward this promised land. Joseph experienced the liminal space when he's in the pit. Um, Jonah in the belly of the fish. The Israelites in the desert between Egypt and the promised land. Mary at the tomb the disciples in the upper room, and now Cleopas and his friend. It's between the, the now and the not yet. 
So the invitation as we read this each week is to find ourselves in the story and to ask what is our liminal space? What road are we on? Ruth Haley Barton talks about the fact that um, one of the disciples on the road is unnamed. One is named Cleopas, who might be or might not be the husband of one of the women we read in John 19, the wife of Cleopas. So that's an interesting twist to the story. But the other disciple is uh, unnamed. Maybe it is Mrs. Cleopas. Maybe it is someone else. But the fact that this disciple, this follower of Jesus on the road is unnamed, invites us to put our name in that space, to find ourselves in this story, to find ourselves encountering Jesus on whatever road you're on. So that's the question. What road are you on? What liminal space do you find yourself in? Maybe that is just in terms of your own academics, or maybe it's in terms of relationships, or maybe that's in terms of an unknown future, or maybe that's in terms of of something that is going on in your life or in your family. But there is an unknown, there is a stirring, there is a potential anxiety and a fear and a paralysis, but there's also the possibility of faith and the possibility of entering into this new space in the proximity to Jesus. So, find yourself in this story. This is an invitation to discipleship but also to be aware that Jesus not only calls us into journey with him, he also meets us where we are. I think that's a really awesome contrast. I was thinking back to the first part of John. Some of you have been in in our community groups, so you've been in John all year long. Regardless, the first part of John... um, Jesus is walking up the beach, and a couple of these potential, these soon-to-be disciples come up and say, "Uh, we have a question for you, Jesus, because they'd heard he was, you know, possibly the Messiah, the one they'd been waiting on. We have a question for you, and of all the questions in the whole world, if you were approaching the king of the universe, you could think of some pretty mind-blowing questions. So maybe they just got stage fright. Maybe, you know, I don't, maybe they just froze up. And he said, what do you want? And they said, uh, where are you staying? Which I used to give them a lot of grief about, but I think it's a really good question. Where are you going to be? Because that is where we want to be as well. And Jesus was, His invitation to them was, come and see. And they dropped everything and followed. The fishermen dropped their nets to follow. The tax collector dropped his money to follow. The zealot dropped his zealotry to follow. Everybody dropped something in order to follow Jesus. 
The invitation was to come and follow, to come and see. But here, Jesus joins them in progress. He joins their journey. He's eavesdropping on their conversation. He comes and the text says, walks with them. So it's an invitation to both to respond to this call that Jesus has on your life to come and see, to come and follow, to come and trust, to come be his disciple. But it's also an awareness that Jesus is the one who walks with us on this journey. And sometimes it's really subtle. And so it demands that we pay attention. I was thinking about also the contrast between these two on the road to Emmaus and Paul, at that point, Saul on the road to Damascus. And Saul was this, was this murderer. He had been killing Christians left and right and, and collecting them and putting them in, in jail. He was persecuting the church, all in the name of his Judaism, his religion, doing God a favor, getting rid of these Christians. Jesus appears to him in a massive bright light in this booming voice from heaven. And it caused blindness and confusion and conversion. That wasn't dramatic. I w was, and conversion. I was really just adjusting this horrible mic thing. That was awesome, though, wasn't it? Saul, why do you persecute me? So uh, this is very different. This is very different. In this story, they walked seven miles and had no clue who this visitor was. They encountered Jesus in various ways. And one primary way, and this also relates to us and our discipleship, is they encountered Jesus in Scripture. He told them who the Messiah was through Scripture. And so um, in a few weeks, we're going to really talk about this in full detail, but let me just give you just a, you know, a little appetizer here. Going all the way back to Genesis. That the Messiah would be the seed of the woman whose heel was bruised. That he would be the blessing of Abraham to all nations. That he would be the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus showed them that he was the man who wrestled Jacob at the river, river Jabbok. He was the lion of the tribe of Judah, that the voice, he was the voice from the burning bush, that he was the Passover lamb, that he was the prophet greater than Moses. He was the captain of the Lord's army to Joshua. He was the ultimate kinsman redeemer mentioned in Ruth. He was the son of David who was a king greater than David. He was the suffering savior in Psalm 22. He was the good shepherd of Psalm 23. He was the wisdom of Proverbs and the lover of the Song of Solomon. He was the savior described in the prophets as a suffering servant in Isaiah 53. He was the prince, the Messiah of Daniel who would establish a kingdom that would never end. Who knows what Jesus highlighted in scripture, but every page pointed to him. And they had time on that journey to connect the dots before Jesus opened their eyes to reveal the whole picture. 
uh, we were big fans of Fixer Upper. You ever watch Fixer Upper? The end of every show, they, they have this huge photo of what the house used to look like. And they say, are you ready to see your Fixer Upper? And they pull it back to reveal the restored version, right? Essentially, that only happens in the, in the last three minutes of the show. So the first 57 minutes of the show with commercials is all about the process. This is all about the process that leads to the big reveal. So Jesus reveals himself. They encountered Jesus through the pages of Scripture. They encountered Jesus in the midst of their grief and confusion. They encountered Jesus through a simple meal around the table they encountered Jesus on the road. So this is an invitation to find ourselves in the story, but it is also an invitation to be attentive on the walk. I mentioned earlier that sometimes our destination is, is our whole reason for the walk. Right? We, we want to get there as fast as we can, or we want to accomplish something, or we kind of miss the journey along the way. As we walk toward Easter, the invitation is to slow down. I have a friend in uh, Atlanta, Georgia, who, he's a campus minister at Georgia Tech, and I was there hanging out with him one time, and um, we were walking down to this diner. Um, this, what's the name? Var the Varsity? Is that it? The Varsity. And you walk into the varsity, and they say, what do you have? I love that. And uh, so we walk into the varsity, and that part of the story didn't matter. I just could not think of the name of the diner, so excuse me. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm walking at my usual Indiana pace, you know? And he goes, Trump, slow down. I was like, I didn't know I was walking fast. He goes, down here we saunter. <laughs> and we walked painfully slow. <laughs> he said, just take a look around. Enjoy the conversation. Saunter. So this is an invitation to saunter with Jesus. And as we do, we walk a walk of daily reliance on him. And it becomes less about us and more about Jesus. We realize that with each step, God is whispering, trust me. Trust me. Into all the stuff that is completely uncertain in this liminal space. Urging us to take some risk of faith to be vulnerable, to be honest with our lives. To realize that he is in the middle of restoring the landscape of humanity, transforming lives left and right from the inside out. And for some of us, that is breaking the chains of shame or the chains of achievement-based religion or the chains of sexual sin or the chains of past wounds. 
but he's also transforming the way that some of us are rethinking our purpose and our motivation for where we're heading, our vocation, our location, our community. Hebrews 12, 1, therefore, since we're surrounded by a huge cloud of witnesses, which on the pages of Hebrews 11 is this snapshot of, of who's who in Scripture, since we're surrounded by such a huge cloud or crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. Let's run with endurance the race that God has set for us. So it's an invitation to find ourselves in the story. It's an invitation to put, um, to, uh, what's the second one? To be attentive. Yes, thank you. Need some sleep. And it's an invitation to uh, walk together. We spent three weeks before spring break talking about our mission as church that our mission is with and in and through the presence and the power of Jesus. Charles Spurgeon wrote, when two saints are, are talking together, Jesus is very likely to come and make the third one in the company. Talk of him, and you will soon talk with him. We read this a couple of weeks ago. This is Ephesians 4. It says, Paul says, in light of all this, this is what I want you to do. I want you to get out there and walk. Better yet, Run. On the road God called you to travel. I don't want any of you sitting around on your hands. I don't want anyone strolling off down some path that goes nowhere. And mark that you do this with humility and discipline, not in fits and starts, but steadily, ongoingly, pouring yourselves out for each other in acts of love, alert at noticing differences and quick at mending fences. You were called to travel on the same road and in the same direction, so stay together both outwardly and inwardly. You have one master, one faith, one baptism, one God who rules over all, works through all, and is present in all. Everything you are and think and do is permeated with oneness. So this is an invitation to walk together these next six weeks. And more than anything, this is an invitation to encounter We're going to take communion together, and so if you are preparing that, would you uh, be so kind as to do that? I was uh, rereading a a book by Sky Jathani called With, and he mentioned this word that J.R.R. Tolkien coined, eucatastrophe. And if you're not familiar with Tolkien, um, he was the writer of The Lord of the Rings. And he often employed this storytelling device called eucatastrophe. So a catastrophe, as you know, is an unexpected evil. But Tolkien added the Greek prefix eu, meaning good, to express, listen to this, the unexpected appearing of goodness. He defined it as the sudden happy turn in a story which pierces you with joy, with a joy that brings you to tears. It has this effect on us because it is a sudden glimpse of truth in which we feel a sudden relief as if a major limb out of joint has suddenly snapped back. 
Repeatedly in his stories, the eucatastrophe occurs just as all hope appears to be lost. In the moment the eagles swoops in for the eagles swoop in for the rescue, the riders of Rohan arrive at the battle, or Gandalf the White appears with the breaking of the day. Cleopas and his friend experienced the eucatastrophe of the breathtaking resurrected Christ in their midst. And they leave saying, oh, we're not our hearts burning within us. We sense that something was up. That in this liminal, now and not yet, scary place of grief and confusion, Jesus was about to blow their minds. The resurrected Christ in their presence. Whatever threshold we're on, the resurrected Christ is in our presence today. And he wants to bring about a eucatastrophe in your life. The old out-of-jointness being snapped back into place with a sudden rush of wow. Colossians 2, 6. Just as you've received Christ Jesus, the Lord, walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, overflowing with gratitude. This is an invitation to encounter Jesus, but also to walk with Jesus, to have our eyes wide open and attentive to his presence and his power in our lives. We're going to take communion together, and this is a, it's called communion for a purpose. We are communing together as the body of Christ, but communing with Jesus as well. Um, Hold on just a second before you pass that. I've got one more thing. <laughs> Actually took it back. That was, that was classic, Alex. That was great. So this bread in this cup, actually, can I hold that for a sec? Thanks. So as you, as you read through that, it's like their eyes were open as Jesus broke the bread. But more than likely, these two disciples weren't in the upper room four nights earlier. Perhaps they had heard that story. That room was full of Passover imagery. Four cups, broken bread, everything clicked in terms of Jesus as the perfect Passover lamb, now about to go to the cross as the perfect sacrifice on behalf of all humanity. This was just a meal. Just a common meal. And yet, when he broke the bread, their eyes were open. And how Jesus usually works is both through the supernatural and through the common. 
And so supernaturally opening their eyes after supernaturally their eyes had been blocked until they got the full picture, until they got the full seven miles. But also, perhaps that is when they saw the hand. Perhaps that's when they saw the scars. As we see later when Jesus appears to the 12, to the eleven. He's like, put your hand in, in the wound, right? Perhaps that's when their eyes were opened, when they saw the pierced hand of Jesus. I don't know. That's speculation. That's a really cool thought for me to think that as we come to communion today, to have our eyes open to the love of Jesus expressed through the brokenness of his body and the poured out blood and it's him giving that to you today with the scars of your salvation.